you would, join me in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And we will start reading in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up the mountain because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priest and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your love and your kindness. I thank you for this message that we have to proclaim. And uh, how much uh, we learn from the example of uh, this uh, nation, this holy nation, so many thousands of years ago. And I pray, Father, that uh, we would know how this would apply to our own lives, so that this would give us wisdom, this would give us guidance for our day today and the days ahead of us. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One thing I think that we've learned from Exodus is that God is on the move. God is on the move. And that simply means that God has a plan, and he is always working to bring that plan to fruition. He's always working out his plan. He is always working for the good of his people, but he's always working out his plan of redemption. What is that plan of redemption? God is on the move to bring his kingdom of heaven to earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That ought to be the core desire of every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is that what's up there in heaven would be true here on earth. That heavenly reality would come and overtake this broken world in which we live. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the kingdom of heaven to triumph over evil, and in Christ we find that to be true. As we fast forward all the way from Exodus to Revelation, we see that we have overcome the evil one by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of our testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They went to their death, in other words, proclaiming and bearing witness to Jesus Christ as Lord. And this is how we win. This is our victory. And ultimately we see in Revelation 21 where God makes his dwelling amongst his people. He makes all things new. He says everything right. Don't you long for that day? Don't you yearn for that day where God sets everything right 
But even now we see that all of history is moving forward, rushing forward to the day when God makes his dwelling with his people. And we get a taste of all of that in Exodus. They were in Egypt. They were under a wicked tyrant. And God comes after them. God not only delivers his people, he delivers them in person. He doesn't mail it in. He doesn't just throw down a book. He comes himself and sets his people free, a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, and brings them up to the mountain of God. What we're reading today is ultimately what God promised to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, where he said, You will bring them out, and they will worship me on this mountain. So this is the fulfillment of something that God had promised Moses a long time ago. And so we ought to consider for a moment that everything that's written here for us is for our instruction, for us to learn from their situation. If God was on the move then, I assure you, he is on the move now. God is doing great and mighty things around the world, whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel it or not. God is moving. God is working. God is working out his victory in this world. Don't be deceived into thinking this is a lost cause. Don't be deceived into thinking there's nothing that we can do. Don't be deceived into thinking that God does not have a plan to use you, to use this church, to reach this area for the Lord Jesus Christ. He does. The good news of his kingdom is proclaimed. People come to know Jesus as Savior and enter into that kingdom. And churches are planted as outposts of his heavenly kingdom here on earth. This is how God is on the move in our area. It's how he's been on the move in our area for centuries. But our question for today is how should we as a church respond to what God is doing? How should we as a church respond to what God is doing. If Exodus is written for our instruction, what do we have to learn from this scene that unfolds in Exodus chapter 19? The first thing we ought to learn is that we should give thanks to God by remembering all that he has done. Give thanks to God by remembering all that he has done. Sounds simple, but I want you to look back at chapter 19, verse 3 and following. And if you were to ask me, what is the heart and soul? If, if you were to say, Jared, just pick out, pluck out one passage that sums up better than any other passage what this entire book is about, I'd take you to Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, because this really is at the heart of everything that's going on in this book. And if you'll remember, when we started this series, we started actually in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. But listen to this. It says, Then Moses went up to God... And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So in this story, Moses makes a trip up the mountain three separate times in Acts 19, three separate times, and each time he comes back with a word from God. And the heart of this message from Exodus 3 through 7 really is underlined in one word, and that is remember, remember what God has done. He gives them a short history lesson. He gives them a short history lesson, stuff they should already know because they've lived it, right? Have you ever had somebody tell you something you already know? 
I have the spiritual gift of stating the obvious, okay? Uh, and uh, my wife will be the first, Sarah will be the first one to tell you that I, I have the spiritual, I just, I love summarizing things, I love stating the obvious, okay? It's just what I tend to do. And here you have an example where, hey, they've lived through this. They know exactly what has happened, but God is about to them, for them to state the obvious, to remind them, to help them to remember what he has done in their past. But this is not a history lesson intended for them just to recall cold events of history. It's meant to move them to adoration. It's meant to move them to thanksgiving. As they remember how God so affectionately cared for them and protected them, their love for God should be stirred and they should be moved to give thanks to God. So God is helping them to see these events in a certain way. We might talk about this a little bit later, but if you turn on the History Channel, every now and then they'll... Uh, they uh, dabble in, and I don't watch much of the History Channel, but uh, from what I can remember, sometimes they dabble in their ideas of what the Bible, what's really going on in the Bible, okay? And so all these mysteries and these conspiracies. And one of the things that you'll find is uh, that uh, sometimes they will portray the events of the Exodus a certain way. Like uh, they give natural causes as to how all of this could have played out to where no divine intervention is necessary for all of these miraculous events to have happened. And so they give a certain interpretation that's a naturalistic interpretation that has no need for the divine, no need for God. And I've always watched that and I just think, well, how fortunate is Israel that all of these Uh, events just so happen to work out for their advantage, so they just walk out of there, right? Uh, How fortunate are they? How lucky are they that it's all worked out? But the reality is God is doing something much different. He is going back and he is showing each and every one of those events. He is portraying that entire series as something that he did for them. So they don't just see random events happening. They see God actually in his sovereignty, in his providence, caring for his people. And so the things that go on in your day-to-day life, yes, you could see it from a naturalistic standpoint. You could look at it in a way that God's not intervening, God's not working all around you, or you could look at it through a heavenly perspective that God is on the move. He's doing something in your life, whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel it or not, God is working in your midst. Work with Him. Go with God. And trust in him, but give thanks to God by remembering all he has done as we celebrate Thanksgiving and really any holiday for that matter. If you think about it, a lot of holidays are intended to bring up history for us. They bring up history, things we're supposed to remember from our past and be thankful for as Christians. Earlier, we celebrated the Lord's Supper in order to remember what God has done in Christ. And as Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So we're to engage in this idea of remembering what Jesus has done. And this is an act of worship when you bring back to your mind and you recall what God has done on your behalf to save you. To know no matter what, God is for us and he has acted on our behalf to set us free, that we are forgiven, we are rescued. And this ought to change the way that we interact with the world. This ought to change the way that we see the world. We have a problem of seeing the world rightly, which brings us to number two, the way that we as a church should respond to what God is doing. Not only should we give thanks, not only should this be a place where we are constantly giving thanks to the Lord, and that be true of us, a characteristic of this church, but we should be a church 
who devotes ourselves to understanding the word. Devote yourself to understanding the word. Look back at chapter 19, verse 6 again. You will be for me a kingdom and priest, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Verse 7, so Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. So Moses trekked up the mountain and he comes down from the mountain with a word from the Lord. And it's clear whatever Israel was to do, they were to be guided by the word of God rather than just what seemed right to them. If you just go by what seems right to you, you will always be a prisoner to the culture you're in. But if you commit yourself, if you devote yourself to understanding the word of God, then you are set free by the truth, left to ourselves, we will go with what seems right, and that will often be wrong. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that appears to be right. There's a way. Have you ever had a, a, an experience in your life where you did something that appeared to be right to you in that moment, and then as it turns out, you were wrong? Okay? Uh, there, there are times in life where we do what appears to be right to us, and the Bible says, in the end, it leads to death. Left to ourselves, if we followed what appeared to be right to us, we just followed our hearts, we'd have the same outcome as if we just got in our car. I just want you to imagine, and don't do this, by the way, but if after the service, everybody just got in their cars, they turned it on, they put it in drive, and then they just pushed the gas. And they just praise the Lord. Okay, don't, don't put your hands on the steering wheel. Just push the gas. Go wherever the Spirit leads you, Right? Okay, go, go wherever it leads you. No, the, the idea is you've got to steer. And as a people of God, what steers us is the word of God, not by what just seems right to us. That's why you see so many churches today, I think, just out for a spin, no telling where they're going to end up, uh, because they have detached themselves from the word of God. Of God, The word is how God revealed himself to his people and how he renewed their thinking in the way they saw the world. On the one hand, Israel became acquainted with who God is, that God is our savior. He is our deliverer. He is our refuge, our strength. He is the one who carries us on eagle's wings. He is our shelter, our mighty fortress. This is the God to whom we serve. And so their theology was not based on just what they felt like God was like. What, who even they wanted God to be, but who God actually was as he revealed himself to them through his word. But also the word shaped how they ought to think about historical events as we've already seen. Rather than seeing the Exodus as just some bland historical event, God tells them, this is me carrying you. That was me carrying you on eagle's wings because you are my treasured possession. As God's people, we are to study God's word. We are to understand God's word if we are ever going to see the world accurately. If we are ever going to see the world accurately. This goes beyond just reading it to actually studying it. So many of us are bored with God because we don't know how wonderful he is. We've forgotten his splendor and his majesty, and his holiness, and it's become bland to us. We spend so many days and nights grumbling because we don't see the great things that God is doing all around us. But when we spend more time 
being discipled by the media, being trained by forces outside the church, it's no surprise that so many see the world the way that they do. We need to turn off our TVs. We need to put our phones down. And we need to focus our attention on the Word of God. How much time do you spend not just reading it, not just casually reading it, but actually studying the Word, committing yourself to understand what it means? When is the last time, by the way, you studied the Bible with a desire to know what it means rather than just reaffirming what you already believe? Where you read the Bible, coming to the Bible knowing that the Bible is inerrant, you ain't, right? You're coming to the Bible with the understanding that, hey, there's some things in my mind that are just off and they need to be corrected by the Word of God. Let me give you a passage to write down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Familiar passage. Here's what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, let me break that down for us. How is the Bible useful? You say, well, if, if someone were to come up to you and say, well, what use is the Bible? Well, notice, notice what it says. For, it's useful for teaching, in other words, the way that we ought to approach the Bible is as a student, humble, willing to learn, willing to grow, not approaching it to reaffirm what we already think and our, the ideas that we already have, but approaching it to learn and to grow, to let the Bible speak for itself. But it's not only going to teach us, look at that next thing of what it's useful for that we don't like so much, rebuke. Can I ask you something? When's the last time that you sat down for your... Uh, Bible study, and you read the Bible, and as you read the Bible and as you studied it, you realized that the Bible is saying one thing, it's saying one thing over here, and then as you begin to look at your life, you see that you're living a totally different way, and you see those two things are not in line with each other, and you say, hey, I, I'm convicted, I'm being rebuked by the Word of God, and I need to change. I need to do something different with my life. When's the last time that happened in one of your Bible studies? If it's not happened, then you're not studying the Bible. You think that you're inerrant. It says for rebuke, for correction. So not only does it teach us the way, it teaches us, it rebukes us, it shows us where we've gotten off the way, but it corrects us, it shows us how to repent, how to turn back to the Lord, how to follow His ways, and then it trains us in righteousness. It shows us how to stay on that path. This is what the Bible is useful for. So when Moses descended the mountain with the word of the Lord, and he shared with them the word of the Lord, what their job was, in part, was to understand what God is telling them to do, not just assume they already have an idea. Because what seemed right to them at one point was, hey, let's go make a golden calf. And let's say that this golden calf is the one who led us out of Egyptian bondage. Hey, let's, let's make up some other gods and some other idols and let's worship them. Hey, let's do all of these other things that God has told us not to do. They had a way that seemed right to them, but its end was destruction. The Bible is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And here's the other thing. 
The Bible is meant to be studied in community. We are meant to learn from one another. We are meant to grow together. In, yes, in settings like this, but also in life group settings where you're reading Scripture together and you get to grow together in the Word of God. Number three, surrender to God's call as one people. Surrender to God's call as one people. Look down at verse 8. It says, The people all responded together, We will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So after having a firm grasp of what the word means, then it's time to actually do what it says. I love what the common English Bible says here. It says, The people all responded with one voice. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. They had one voice They were bought in. That means collectively they agreed to be obedient, to do what God had called them to do, to put it into action, to implement what God had called them to. This brings us back to our original question. What are we supposed to be doing as a church? We are to commit ourselves to giving thanks, is what we've said. Commit ourselves to giving thanks. I love what uh, the coach of Baylor's basketball team says. He says, a culture of joy, that ought to characterize the church, a culture of of joy, a culture where people gather and they give thanks to God rather than being cynical, rather than having a critical spirit. We gather and we rejoice in the goodness of our Savior and our King and what He has done on our behalf. But also, we are a people devoted to understanding the Scriptures. We are a students of the Bible culture where we are loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We exhaust our minds on the word, knowing that it will renew our thinking, knowing that it will give us what we need to see the world rightly. But also, we are to speak with one voice as people who are willing to surrender to what God has called us to do. So we are to be a culture of faithfulness and obedience as well. I want you to imagine two different coaches where they have uh, two different systems. And let's say that one, uh, one plan, one system is just brilliant. It's just brilliant. And then the other one is it's mediocre. It's okay. Okay, it's not bad. It's, it's kind of okay. Uh, but it's, it's not brilliant. But this one great coach, he's got this system. And, um, and the system, he's got players that about halfway buy into it about halfway by into the system, and they're about half-hearted in it, and, and really it's about them, and hey, hey, can I get the ball? Can I do this or that? And, and it's really not, they're really not buying into the system. But this other team, this mediocre system, kind of a little bit above average system, they wholeheartedly buy into. They devote themselves. They, they, they learn how to run the plays with precision. They do everything that the coach tells them to do. Which of those two teams do you think is going to work out better? The one that has bought in. Here's the thing. We have a plan. It's called the Great Commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded us, knowing that he is with us to the end of the age. That is our plan. We see the playbook in Acts, how that actually played out. So we know that this works. We know that they went out into the world and disrupted the ancient world with the good news of Jesus Christ. But here's where a lot of churches struggle. They struggle with buying in and committing themselves, surrendering to what God has called them to do. God is telling us that we are a kingdom of priests. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. 
verse 9, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who's he writing this to? He's writing this to people who once were not a people. He's writing this to people who were not once part of the covenant people of God. But he says, now you are a covenant people. You are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a people called out for God's own possession. Why? Why would God call us out? So that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are as a people to surrender to God's call. And Taylor's Valley Baptist Church, just imagine a church where everybody, everybody bought in wholeheartedly to do what God had called them to do. Imagine Imagine the impact a church like that would have on its surrounding community. Can I tell you something before we go to the next uh, couple and close out? In the first century, followers of Jesus were not martyred because they were just being nice people. They were not martyred because they were just being good and they had good behavior, just because they had a list of things that they did do and then another list of things that they didn't do, and that defined their Christianity. That's that's not why they were martyred. They were martyred because they had a dangerous message that actually upended the ancient world. There's a reason that even today, in certain parts of the world, they will not allow people to walk in with, Bibles and evangelize and plant churches because they know perhaps better than sometimes even we know because we've just been swimming in it for so long. We take it for granted. They know the disruption that would cause to go into some of those places that have been dark for decades and decades and bring the gospel of light the gospel of God's kingdom to that area, how lives would be changed, how churches would be planted, how the whole area would be disrupted for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They know that. That's why they want to keep them out. And then you kind of have to chuckle at places like China where they've tried with all of their power and the gospel continues to advance. Places like China, places like Pakistan, places like India, places... Uh, like Iran, places that you would think there's no chance that Christianity, that the gospel could advance there. It's advancing. The governments try all they can. The gospel advances in the midst of the darkness because people are bought in to it. They believe it, and then they carry it out. They're not bored with Christianity. I can promise you that. I can promise you that. Number four, reorient your life for God's mission. Chapter 9, all the way back. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. He tells them to go through a washing. He tells them to go through a, a time of consecration. They are uh, to, the first thing they are to do to themselves is consecrate themselves, literally set themselves apart to be holy, to sanctify themselves. This is a symbol of their reverence for God, that they take God seriously. This serves as a preparation for them to meet the Lord. So uh, they, don't, uh, they, they cannot come just as I am 
in that situation. There, there is a washing that takes place. Uh, so it's a different situation that they're going through. In this context, they must go through a washing. Like Isaiah, when he appeared before the Lord, his gut reaction was to say, Woe is me, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips. And the first thing he wants to do is to uh, have his sins atoned for, to be washed, to be cleansed, to have his guilt taken care of. But also like in Isaiah, the cleansing is not an end in itself. It is for a purpose. In other words, Israel is cleansing themselves, but they're to go out and be a kingdom of priests to their God. Isaiah, yes, his guilt is atoned for, but then God says, who is there to go for me? And he says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. At the beginning of a Christian's walk with the Lord, the first thing they do is to get baptized. Get baptized. You say, well, uh, does the baptism actually in and of itself wash away their sins? Kind of like what Sam Houston said. He was baptized in a a creek or a river, and he said he pitied the fish downstream, you know. Uh, So that that might be true of a lot of us. But the reality is we are washed by the Holy Spirit. The moment we believe we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, we are saved by God. But this is a symbol of what God has done. And it's not just a symbol of us being washed. We are washed for a purpose to go out and to carry out the mission of God in the world. Israel encamped around the tabernacle. A little bit later on, they had a tabernacle. All the tribes encamped around the tabernacle because they were to orient their lives around the presence of God. How is your life oriented right now? What things is your life oriented around? Finally, number four. Number four, fear the Lord. This last one is very simple. Fear the Lord. He gave a lot of instruction about, hey, you know what? Don't just stroll up this mountain, right? You wash yourself, you consecrate yourselves, and then you wait for what? The blast of the trumpet before you come to meet God, okay? And what does all that mean? That means they are to take this whole experience very seriously. They're not to put it on the back burner. They're not just mindlessly go through motions uh, to appear before the Lord. They are to take very seriously the fact that they are about to stand before God Almighty and worship Him. The mountain itself is structured like a temple. Only certain people can go up top. There's a washing process. There's all this sort of stuff that takes place. God repeats the same set of commands three times. Verses 12 and 13, verses 21 and 22, and verse 24. He says the same thing three times. Because sometimes we need to be told more than once, okay? And so he does. Israel's to take this seriously. I want to close with this. Talk about fear of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul begins to describe why he is going to persuade people. And he says in verse 11, he says, I think it's verse 10 or 11, he says, out of reverence for God, out of fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because we fear the Lord, we persuade others. And what he just got finished talking about is everyone is going to stand before God and give an account for how they've lived in the body, whether for good or for evil. And with that fresh on his mind, knowing that one day he's going to give a report to God, knowing one day he's going to stand to account for how he's lived his life, he said, you know what? Out of fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In other words, God has so blessed us with such abundance with this gospel message 
And what are we going to do with it? Are we just going to sit on it? Are we not going to do anything with it? Or are we going to go out with this message knowing that it really does redeem people? It really does give people hope. It really does heal people. And we're going to go out with that message into the world rather than be stingy with it and just say, man, I can't wait to fly away and go to heaven. There's two kinds of Christians today, and there's those who have received that gospel. It's all for them. It's all about them. And they're, they got their ticket punched to heaven, and they feel so good about it, but they don't do anything with it. And then there are those who, man, they feel a burden to take this good news of great joy to all people so that the world knows of the hope that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. My question for you today is, which one are you? Are you just going to go through your days, week after week, day after day, with this good news? Or are you going to use it knowing that you have been called to serve God? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Maybe today you just want to give your heart to Christ. Maybe you want to follow through a believer's baptism. Maybe you want to partner with this church in carrying out this mission and completely buy in. Maybe you need to come kneel at the altar and pray, God... Help me not to waste this life I've been given. Help me not just to piddle around for the rest of my days doing what seems right and feels good. But God, help me to go out with purpose, knowing that my labor is not in vain. Knowing that one day I'm going to stand before you and, oh, give us a yearning for those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Gracious Father, I pray for us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us. Your spirit would convict us of sin of righteousness, of judgment, that we'd look at your word, we'd look at our lives, we'd see if they match up. Or if there's something this morning where, God, you're rebuking us, you're correcting us because you love us. And so, Father, give us the strength and the courage to change, to turn, to repent, knowing that there is grace in abundance. You're rich in mercy. Your love endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and you respond as the Lord leads right now.